Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of the Figure Podcast. Each episode, we look at three different figures. Charlotte, why are you no longer watching Love Island? And is it to do with what I heard about apparently every boy cheated, I don't really know what the right lingo is, on their current coupled up partners when they went to Casa Amor, which is this kind of simulated lads weekend. And apparently Jake was the friend who was like in a relationship, but he was encouraging everyone else to stray. In a word, yes. I'm no longer watching it because it basically meant that my friend Mary and I went to bed angry every night because we were so irritated by these stupid boys who are so immature and who just tell people what they want to hear, but then just do whatever they want and don't understand that they're hurting people's feelings, but also just annoyed at the show in general because I think they're really... There's there's one level where it is obviously entertainment. People go on this show and they should know roughly what to expect. But there were certain things that the producers did, like sending a postcard from the Casa and Moore house where the boys were back to the girls' house, showing photos of this dare that the boys set up. That wasn't Nobody asked them to do it, but they did like a truth or dare thing on their first night and everybody completely went for it. Everyone was kissing each other. And um, they then sent a postcard back and also like photos of who was sleeping in the same bed with each other. But they only did it one way. So they didn't do it from the girl's house to the boy's house, showing their challenge, which they were asked to do, or anything else. And so there was just a real like playing with people's feelings. And I don't think that that is, there's there's a line, I feel. And I think this is where the show is going to come into problems again. And of course, people have mental health difficulties when they come out of this environment if they've had that and then it's been on television Mm. anyway we're no longer watching but I may watch the final (laughs) let's um move on and talk about some recommendations rather than some non-recommendations non-recommendations so let's go with you first what would you like to recommend this month I would like to recommend British Scandal great podcast takes you through all sorts of interesting political kind of scandals that have happened and they kind of break it down and I'm still reading What Red Was by Rosie Price which is actually recommended by Pandora Sykes on Hilo a few years ago and I've got that book it's been yeah. on my shelf for it since they had her on as an interview yeah I really like it's so good it's so, so well written and it's very relatable and it's about people of our age and I really like that and then I also am reading a book on Eleanor of Aquitaine, which I bought in a charity shop last week. Um, I'm also really enjoying that. I'm becoming my father, like literally becoming my father. This is exactly the kind of book he would have on holiday. Eleanor of Aquitaine, the front cover is a sort of stained glass window kind of history novel vibe. Yeah. Is it a paperback? Yes. That's <laughs> like kind of a bit old and a bit... And just got lots of character to it. Yeah. Love it. That's so nice. Um, I'll go first with my books then. I've got quite a few recommendations. The first one is The Comfort Book by Matt Haig, who we love. You've read Matt Haig, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reasons to um, stay I've read. Yeah. Have you read The Midnight Library? It's on my Audible. As okay. is Sunset by Jesse Cave. So I technically have four books that I'm reading at once. Wow. Yeah. 
spinning plates. Oh, I'm not um, going to finish any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the comfort book is a collection of thoughts and poems in some ways and little tiny essays and just this distillation of wisdom really and it's like the little sections of his book where you just go oh my gosh yes that's so true and then he's put all of those sections and all of his kind of things that have helped him through his own mental health struggles into one big book and it's very easy to dip in and out it makes the perfect present especially if you know somebody who's having a tough time at the moment and I just really recommend it I'm buying it for everybody And uh, I think that's why it's number one Sunday Times bestseller. And the second book that I'm reading is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. And this won the Women's Prize for Fiction last year. And it's basically the telling of the son of Shakespeare and his family. There's quite a lot about his wife. um, And it's just beautifully written. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm loving every page and just blown away by the imaginative aspects of it and that you get an insight into somebody that you think you know so well Shakespeare especially as an English literature student and then you just get to be more kind of creative and think outside of that and around it uh, which I'm really loving Um, and also on Maggie O'Farrell I listened to her how to fail episode which is brilliant yeah I've listened to that it's really good really really good and there's a couple of episodes I listened to I had a very long drive and so I basically just put on how to fail and just caught up with a whole load of different episodes everyone that I listened to was fantastic Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has a very moving interview oh that's such a love oh I listened to that running on the beach last week and that was amazing I felt so inspired after that it's very raw but very cathartic and in fascinating insight into grief and for her being such a wonderful writer as well I think she articulates her feelings and her experiences in a really impressive articulate way and then Kazuo Ishiguro was also really really interesting um and he's the author of things like Never Let Me Go and Clara and the Sun which I think you've just read Mm -hmm. do you recommend it? I would, yes. I love Kazuo Ishiguro. Great. And then the last one was Adrian Dunbar, who is um, most well-known for his role on Line of Duty. And he just did the most extraordinary monologue on failure and expectations and his thoughts about it. And he clearly spent a long time before coming onto the podcast, really digging into what it means to him and his experiences. And he just talks with such fluency. I was amazed. I was like, he's still going with this. And it's uh, everything that he says was so brilliant. And then quickly, last two other recommendations are albums, because I thought we don't actually recommend music that often, but I thought I would. One of them is the new release from Delilah Montague, who is a good friend of mine and Georgia's as well. She came onto the podcast quite a few episodes ago, but she's got a, I guess it's an EP, but it's actually got a lot of different tracks in it called Baby. Uh, which I've been loving. And the other one is We Forgot We Were Dreaming by St. Raymond. I think it came out last year. But it's just very beautiful, comforting and um, uplifting and and just well written. Also, have you listened to Happy Mum, Happy Baby recently? No, I've got the biggest load of archive ever. I haven't That's really. Great. I've listened to several. Um, Emma Barnett has a really good episode about 
endometriosis and she comes across very well but also Jake and Hannah Graff who are the first transgender couple to have a baby through surrogacy that was very interesting so would recommend those two episodes for sure it's Britney bitch (laughs) (laughs) yes the first episode is Britney 39-year-old, extremely successful female pop star and icon. She's currently under a conservatorship of her father, Jamie Spears, and another wealth management company and lawyer. And essentially a conservatorship. It's a court order established by a judge to regulate somebody's financial and personal affairs, their daily life as well. So kind of everything is controlled. Uh, And usually it's given under duress. So if someone has mental health incapacitation or if they're due to old age, I guess thinking about it, if you've got an elderly relative who might have something like Alzheimer's dementia and they're in charge of, you know, a large amount of money or a big estate, they can't handle that. So there's give, they're given a conservator. The reason, obviously, that it's very unusual with Brittany is because she was put under this conservatorship as a young, capable woman. And a lot of people have been questioning this, including her. We heard her testify. But zooming out of that... Britney has been in the background of our lives for such a long time. It was the first album that I ever bought. I was probably about five years old. I think the most crushing thing that I've found from this research, and I don't know, Shah, if you feel the same, but just how young she was. You know, when I think about myself now at 25, when she was 25, she was probably the most famous woman in the world, having had two children and was very quickly cycling into this uncontrollable press hurricane. And thinking about when she first became famous, she was 17. And, and that's just crazy. She was 16 when Baby One More Time came out. Yeah. 16. So what we thought we'd do for this section is go through some of the labels that Pandora Sykes runs through in her podcast, Pieces of Britney, which I cannot recommend highly enough. Georgia spoke about it last time. And... It's just, I feel like I've read or listened to the most interesting biography book about Britney, but with so many different voices, because the way that she's pieced everything together is, it's very Pandora Sykes because she's just so well-read and she is very good at making connections between different things. Because there's a narrative that Pandora Sykes has over the top, but then she inserts clips and dramatic representations of different sections of Britney's life, which is based on her mum's account or somebody else's book that's, or a different podcast that's been about Britney or an interview that was between her and somebody. And I'm just so impressed with the way that she's created that and produced it. It's like listening to a television show. It's very well done. Yeah. So the first one is Teen Sensation. So I hardly knew anything actually about Britney's childhood until I listened to this podcast, even though, as you said, Britney has been a massive part of our childhoods because of the age that we were and the icon that she was. And I just remember just wanting to be like Britney and just wanting to like dress like her, knew all the words to all of the songs. Remember my tiny little like CD player that I'd have in my room and the album cover and I'd sit and listen to the CD in my room. But Britney first went on TV when she was 10. She was part of a talent show. 
And she has this huge, incredible voice. She then goes on to be a Mouseketeer as part of the Mickey Mouse Club um, with Christina Aguilera and Justin Timberlake. And then when she's 15, I believe, she has a record deal with Jive Records, but it has a get out clause, which means that she can be dropped at any time. So the benefit was really for the record company and not so much for Britney. But when she picked up the track Baby One More Time, which was written by Max Martin, that was when it really took off for her and was played on the radio. And she, did you know that she toured around all of these shopping malls? Mm, I remember hearing about Girls Aloud back when they were just, you know, they would say their week would consist of every morning getting up at 5am, going to a radio station, a shopping mall, a signing in a, you know, CD, because there there was no social media, no internet. So the only way that you could promote something was by doing it in person, which must have been, that was just crazy to think about now, Mm. Um, given that you can, you know, have an Instagram account and suddenly have an audience of 200 million I totally agree. But what I found so distressing about the most recent racial abuse of these footballers online, Mm. I just think with Britney, so many interviewers have just gone so far past the line to the point where you think, how do you feel that that's appropriate, that we can have ownership over that information of her? And this obsession with her virginity is Mm. really, really disturbing to listen back to. She answered the question, are you a virgin, on TV, which she forever regretted by the sounds of it because then everybody was hounding her and then there was this whole thing when Justin Timberlake and her broke up and he made it seem as if she had cheated, but we don't know whether that's true or not. And then answer the question, you know, did you have sex with Britney? Except that they used a different word on radio. And uh, he said yes. And it just feels really, really horrible to listen to this again being mindful of her age and how young she was and that it's just not appropriate in any way but it was normalized yeah I I mean and I guess that added to the sort of frenzy around the interest from the media of her I guess sex sells right and so that they whoever it was her management the record label made her very sexualized very early on I see parallels to that now even with someone like Megan Fox who's kind of coming back into the spotlight a bit she's got movies coming out and she's dating quite a famous like rock star as well and she was sexualized at a really young age and what's funny is she talks about how you know people were so interested in who I was dating or who I'd had relationship with and I've literally only dated one person or two people I've been like married for 10 years and now I'm in another relationship and only date one person at the same time and that's it but Megan Fox we had this like obsession with how attractive she was or how beautiful she was and the same with Britney and it's kind of this I don't know maybe like the Madonna whore complex of we almost want them to be one thing and if they're they're sexy and like sexualized then okay we can intrude in their life and it's fine if we follow them and it's fine if we print stories about who they're dating because they're this one way Well, I think Britney basically spoke to both of those obsessions because she had publicly said that she was a virgin and she wanted to wait until marriage. They were almost desperate to tear her down, though. They were desperate to be like, no, you're not a virgin because you're in a crop top in a music video, so you can't be. Yeah. 
And what was also interesting is that apparently Nigel Dick, who was the um, music video director for both Baby One More Time and Oops, I Did It Again, he was concerned about a certain outfit that Britney wanted to wear on Oops, I Did It Again. He certainly said in his own interviews that he was more conscious of her age and it was not going to be stopped. But also that I think Britney herself wanted to wear these things and why shouldn't she? You know, she can make her own decisions and choose what she wants to wear I think the problem then is when this perception of her as this slutty pop star comes along. What I found so distressing about the most recent racial... Thinking back to that point, especially now when I'm thinking about what kind of conversations we have around sexuality and LGBTQ at school and relationships and all of that, we were actually very conservative with a small C back then. That was like shocking to see a young woman dressed that way, whereas now the fashion for 15 or 16 year olds is actually like a crop top and jeans and we have a lot of conversation around consent and we have a lot of conversations around sexuality and sensuality and female pleasure and being in control of your relationships and what you want to put out in the world and what you don't but back then we really didn't so in Mm. the context of that it's actually shocking that they criticize a 16 year old girl for being a bad influence as it were yeah And the other thing around that is the context of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which really changed the way that people thought about or talked about sex at the time, which as, I mean, we we were like children ourselves, so I very much wasn't aware of that at the time. But then connecting the dots, looking back, this rise in the tabloids comes along as Britney is getting more famous. And then we've got Monica Lewinsky fueling that as well. And it all is just this perfect storm for what comes next, which is then the paparazzi culture and this complete invasion of somebody's privacy. And that she would have 30 to 45 paparazzi with her on any given night. And that people could be paid anywhere between 10 and $15,000 for one photo. What did you think about the whole supply and demand argument around the tabloids and the magazines and the photography. I do think that it is the responsibility of a publisher to not, because if we don't, if we don't see it, then we're not going to know that we're missing it as a consumer. Almost like, this is a really weird example to use, but almost like plastic. If we don't, if we don't need to be presented with an option of buying a sandwich in a plastic box and we're just given it in a wax paper bag or however they do it, then we're not going to miss the plastic. Like I'm not going to go, oh, I wish that was plastic because this is so annoying. I'll just accept what's there. I kind of feel that way about the paparazzi, but it, that was also the time of like Big Brother was coming in and people were famous for famous sake as well. And that sold a lot. I think there was also a thing where lots of people like to see so-called successful people being more relatable but then also just having them torn down and Mm. this like facade and all the photoshopping and you see what's underneath it and people find a weird comfort in that because it makes them feel better but that just was taken to such a horrible level with so-called ugly photos selling for huge amounts of money and Mm. then being put everywhere and I thought that what Mila Kunis, the actress, said, which was again quoted on the podcast about trolling on the internet and the headlines that were we saw in the 90s and noughties and how that culture really has informed one another because it's made it okay for somebody to have Bimbo Summit written across Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears. Like 
God. How is that allowed? <laughs> I know. But then they will argue, well, it sells papers. Mm. And so, and then the more they did it, the more they sold. So then it's just this horrible cycle that you get into. But I agree that there is responsibility of the editors to mm. have some kind of ethical element <laughs> to what they're doing. Oh my God, and Lindsay Lohan, I mean, she went through it. Paris Hilton, absolutely. And you see them all, and they're all extremely successful, extremely talented women that have just been, at certain points, like, destroyed. Where, actually, this whole, the whole thing of Britney that I've just reflected on, and I think about Meghan Markle as well, as because you're like, you just have no idea because the media are so corrupt that you have no idea what this person is like, really. We have no idea what Meghan Markle is like, or Paris Hilton, or Britney. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that annoys me is that when people say, well, they chose to be famous, they've done something that's put them on the world stage, mm. and, and therefore we are allowed to have ownership over their life and we can, you know, the paparazzi is part of just what comes with being famous. But... Really, I mean, she, I mean, Britney is somebody who certainly said when she was little that she wanted to be famous, but ultimately she wanted to make music. And I don't see why we should have this horrible side of it that then comes with just being talented. But I think she also needed to get out of poverty. A lot of these young stars do not grow up in a privileged position and, and they actually, you know, are living month to month and maybe a parent is also compromised. I know with Demi Lovato, she spoke about this, you know, she couldn't really be disciplined properly as a 14-year-old because she was paying the bills at home. Brittany, very similarly, she was supporting her parents. That's a very odd dynamic to have and that can cause so much trauma because when you start mixing money with parenting and you and suddenly parent, these parents realise that this child can earn millions and millions and millions of dollars all of that home anchor just completely disrupts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that was a massive element of that. And actually that brings us on to why the conservatorship is so problematic and her relationship with her father is so problematic. What was the next um, word, Shah? Um, so after paparazzi play thing, um, and we should just say on that, that there are people who will say that Britney also courted the press um, to a certain extent at the beginning. But then again, my my feeling on that is that just because you've said yes once doesn't mean that you, it's okay every single night forever. Mm -hmm. um, next uh, word is train wreck, which brings us to 2008 really, uh, which was when the conservatorship began. So leading up to this, she had filed for divorce and the, the podcast again goes into the idea that possibly she was testing Kevin and wondering whether he would actually say that he wanted that as well or not and didn't think that he would and then when he did it was really heartbreaking for her she filed for sole custody he filed for sole custody she lost custody but had visitation rights and then she lost her visitation rights at the same time her aunt dies from cancer and then we get to the moment which everybody will remember which is when she decides to shave her head and then shortly after that, we have the night where paparazzi is coming up to her, asking her questions. And then she takes the umbrella and starts to attack this paparazzi's car. And I want to know, do you remember when those photos came out? And can you remember what you thought at the time? I don't rem I remember the Chris Crocker reaction quite well. 
Um, and he was the same saying, you know, look how much she's gone through. He was the one who said she's a human being. Yeah. And reiterated her age, which was 25. And at the time, obviously, I was 12 or something. So to me, 25 was basically 45. <laughs> um, now that I'm 25, how did she not take her own life? Well, apparently they had obituaries written for her called the 27 Club, which is what... Um, Amy Winehouse and several other pop stars because they all died at the age of 27. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember just feeling really sad and confused about it, but I didn't ever read into it that much. And now I look at it and again, listening to this podcast, there's a psychotherapist that said that actually really that's a very mild reaction to everything that had happened to her. If you think about the number of years that she's been hounded by the press, Mm -hmm. everything in her personal life, which is then splashed all over the place and Mm -hmm mainly I mean losing the right to see her children mm-hmm. and the press being a huge part of that because of them following her around constantly describing her as a bad mother taking photos of every little thing that she did mm-hmm. and criticizing her which then obviously is going to influence and have this narrative that whoever is judging what she gets or not they can't not know about that and that can't not influence their decision even though it shouldn't because it should all be based on what is in front of them of course it will. Definitely. And the, the whole bad mother thing was just ridiculous. Like to have your children taken away from you, the amount that would have to be proven and would have to have happened, I just don't think would be the same with Brittany. Brittany would literally just lost custody of her children pretty, pretty much immediately through things like the paparazzi getting photos of her, you know, driving whilst with the child, although she would try to drive away from paparazzi. Again, that wouldn't happen in normal life. She wouldn't have paparazzi chasing you in the first place and um, tripping with her baby as well that exactly. was a very famous photo. and like this sort of doubt of okay this the media have portrayed you as this sort of train wreck therefore you have you must be a bad mother therefore you're going to lose the rights of your ch- children and I think this is exactly the reason that she agreed to the conservatorship because there's all sorts of questions about why she agreed to do it and the podcast suggests this and other th- podcasts and other things that I've read as well as the New York Times documentary do suggest that she was given either a you can have joint custody with the conservatorship or nothing again the money thing comes up again because her parents you know this conservatorship pays her parents essentially salary which brings us to the next label which is cash cow so Brittany before the age of 17 had sold 80 million records She had, at one point, 29 fragrances to her name. And for her 2013 Las Vegas residency, which took place after the conservatorship, she grossed $100 million in ticket sales alone. So, you see, I mean, she is worth a huge amount of money, but not as much as other celebrities. So when Forbes did it, I think she was $60 million, which is obviously a lot of money. But if you compare it to other pop stars who don't have conservatorships, it's a lot less And that's where there's lots of questions we'll never know really for sure. But her father, as her conservator, has paid a salary. He also is entitled to 1.5% revenue of the Las Vegas residency, which he obviously decided that she would go into because he makes every single decision for her. So then the more he books her into work, the more money he makes. And that is the real issue, which if it was in the UK, we wouldn't have this because conservators aren't entitled to a salary. But that is a horrible dynamic to be stuck in. And then the other thing is that you can't get out of it 
unless you petition and then it's on the conservatee to be the one to provide the evidence. But the problem is, is that the conservator is controlling the life of the conservatee. So how is that going to, Mm -hmm. how is she going to provide evidence? She said in her testimony that, you know, she's been working, can look after herself. She's not incapacitated in any way. Well, even the fact that it was only two months after she'd been put into involuntary psychiatric ward, that she was back working and then produced an album in the same year. And that does, that for me does not speak to somebody who is like unable to look after themselves. And there may be aspects of her life which she does need help with, but I don't think in the same legal capacity as this conservatorship holds. Mm. Well, just, it, it can never be valid because there's a vested interest from her father for the money. So if she's going to be put under conservatorship, it needs to be a completely separate third party that isn't profiting from it. Yeah. Then I would take it more seriously. Yeah. So that's the last um, label, which is a world-famous Rapunzel locked away in her tower. And yeah, we should talk about the Free Britney movement, which mm-hmm. is very fan-driven and so organized. Like I love the commitment of the fans to the activism of this. It's really incredible what they have done in terms of raising awareness around this and not only around Britney, but around conservatorships in general, because there's no record of how many there are and they're really not put under the scrutiny that they should be. Mm. And hopefully this will be a ripple effect of everything that is happening with Britney. Not only that we finally see Jamie Spears be removed, which hasn't yet happened, but also that we have other people who are in these binds actually have more ability to petition against them if that is the right thing. Mm. What happened, I think, this summer was that her petition to, was denied. So she's still a conservative of her father, but she was given the right to have her own lawyer because previously the lawyer that she had representing her, I believe, was chosen and appointed by her father to her. Yeah. Can we finish with a quiz? Yes. Britney quiz. Okay. Number one, who replaced an 11-year-old Britney Spears as the understudy lead role in Ruthless? Gosh, I have no idea. It was Natalie Portman. Really? Yeah. Her life is full of weird connections like this, especially because of being a child star. And speaking of which, who was Britney's first kiss? Justin Timberlake. Yes, correct. Okay. When they were on the Masketeers together. Which Teletubby was Britney clutching in the Rolling Stone 1999 cover? Ooh, that cover's controversial. Is that the one where they like buttoned down her shirt more than... than and they, they photoshopped it without her realising and didn't show her the photos and then they just published it. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. There must, there has to be an ethical responsibility from a publisher mm. like that. Especially when she's under 18. I mean, it's just outrageous. Yeah, which Teletubby was it? Poe? No, Blue Tinky Winky. <laughs> Damn. Um, how many hours was Britney married to Jason Alexander, who he oh, married in Las Vegas? Like 45, was it? 55 hours. 55 hours. Yeah. What was the name of the Burmese python Britney draped around her neck for an MTV performance? Ooh, that's such an iconic photo of her with the green top and her belly button piercing. I wonder how many belly button piercings happened because of Britney. I imagine many. Um, I don't know. Banana. Banana, the Burmese python. <laughs> and then the final question is, how many years was Britney the most searched term on Google? 
Five. Seven. Wow. World famous. Agree. But what I found so distressing about the most recent racial abuse of these footballers online. I totally agree. But what I also find so distressing about the racial abuse that we saw towards these footballers is that it wasn't only online. We also had the rallies and the... To end on a positive 11, arrests made in connection with the racial abuse to... uh, To end on a positive, though... Very recently, there have been 11 arrests made. Have you been watching much of it? Have you got any favourite events that you've seen? Yes, of course. I watch it every evening at 7.30 whilst, you know, finishing work and stuff. It's actually so nice to have on. I remember the first Olympics that I really followed was the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I was a bit young for the 2004 Athens. I kind of remember it going on. But the Beijing, I remember every single day the television would be on with events happening. Um, Obviously, Michael Phelps, I think, made his breakout there, which was incredible to watch. And we watched the Usain Bolt stuff together, I think. We watched him, yeah, in the London, didn't we? And 26, because he he won gold in 2008, 2012 and 2016, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. No, we did watch that together. That was amazing. I miss him. I feel like it's not the same, but it's also exciting because there's more names that can come in and people actually have a chance of (laughs) winning. (laughs) (laughs) I've loved, did you see Sky Brown skateboarding? Who's the youngest ever GB medalist? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And such a great sport to watch. I really didn't think that that was going to be something that I would this would stand out. And I absolutely loved it. It was so cool. I also loved Max Whitmore, the gymnast on the pommel horse and doing everything. He's incredible. And yeah. did you see the freestyle swimming event with two women, two men that Great Britain won? I didn't. I saw, I did see Keely Hodgkinson who won silver for her race, which was amazing to watch. And it was the race with Katerina, you know, Katerina Johnson-Thompson. She was in a race and she was with Dina Asher-Smith, who was the USA team, I believe. Every single athlete had a double barrel name. Did you see that? That No, I didn't see that. (laughs) (laughs) But the freestyle swimming was really cool. So it was the first time that they'd done this mixed um, medley. And basically Team GB decided to do a different version of when the women went and when the men went. And so they were so far behind for the whole thing. And then they absolutely smashed it and then came back. And it really has sort of shaken up how it would be done in the future. And just the two people, I think, pulled out of their individual races so that they could be part of that medley. And that was really cool. That is really cool. Also been enjoying following Laura and Jason Kenny, who are the cycling couple that, you know, have more gold medals to their name than many countries, which is cool. Couple goals couple girls slash would want to be their kid but who knows they'll probably be a pro cyclist or maybe not an athlete that would be funny if they were just you know a normal guy a lot of pressure um so much pressure we also had some amazing sailing 
I just love how well we do, even though we're such a tiny country. It's so inspiring. And it just, it makes me really emotional. We're just welling up all the time. <laughs> yeah. Hannah Mills, she was, yeah, Jean GB sailor. There was also a couple sailor who got silver. That was really sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been fab watching it. It has been fab. So some of the kind of pivotal moments that have happened over the last century, I guess, in 1900, that was when we first had female athletes in Paris um, for tennis and golf. And then it was 2012 where there was uh, a female representative athlete from every single competing country. Other pivotal moments that we've had are obviously the 1936 Berlin Games when Jesse Owen set new world records and won so many different gold medals. And this was when Hitler had been hoping for his regime of Aryanism to reign supreme and absolutely did not. In 1968 in Mexico City, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, they staged a non-violent protest with the Black Power salute and that was putting the civil rights movement onto an international stage. And then similarly in 1976 in Montreal, there were 22 African nations who boycotted the Olympics because New Zealand was participating and they hadn't complied or gone ahead with the the kind of not sending rugby teams or other sporting teams to South Africa during apartheid. So there's been a lot of huge kind of historical events that have then been connected to the Olympics and, and put it on that mass viewing stage, which I think is really interesting. And then the most recent one being North and South Korea marching together in the opening ceremony in 2000 in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Other fun facts about the Olympics before we move on. In 67 AD, Emperor Nero entered the Olympics himself. He entered the chariot race and he fell off his chariot, but he still declared himself the winner. (laughs) We were classic emperor behavior. Especially from Nero. So who do you think has the most gold medals of all time? And and how many do they have? Um, I feel like it was Michael Phelps. Yes. How many golds does he have? Is it something crazy, like 30? It's pretty crazy. He's got 23 gold medals. Oh my God. Mm. Where would you put them all? I don't know. You and could the just ne- have a whole room. <laughs> and, and interestingly, the next kind of, like there are four athletes that have received nine gold medals. Um, one from the Soviet Union, two from... United States and one from Finland um, in swimming and athletics and gymnastics but he by a mile has got the most and they've got loads that have had seven six five and we have you know the great GB you know Steve Redgrave and Chris Hoy and Bradley Wiggins in there Jessica Ennis has as well Laura Kenny I think has got four but Michael Phelps is a fish love Love him. (laughs) The third figure that we're going to talk about is an illustration by artist Ruben Dangor called Three Lions. And it's obviously of Saka, Sancho and Rashford. And their shadows are of the lions. And then you've got the three players walking along. And it's just a fantastic representation of everything that they mean to Britain um, or most of Britain we hope and especially to me and you and we just wanted to highlight how talented they are and and then also talk a little bit about the online safety bill which is coming up and which would 
hopefully crack down on racial abuse online as well as any posts that encourage self-harm, spread misinformation and just generally cause harm to people who are on these social media platforms. And they're doing that because they're introduced they're trying to introduce an identification, aren't they, of people of users who are setting up accounts. I think that that's part of it, but I don't know if that's confirmed yet. And there's a lot of people who say that this bill isn't going to go far enough to protect people. Mm. What yeah. do you think about anonymous accounts? Because I feel like they should be not allowed. I know. I agree. I agree. I think there's so many, there's so much hate that would be stopped if people had to put, you know, their name, their address, or be, be able to be identified because so many of these accounts you see, it's nobody. However, so I was having a debate about this last week because I I really think that those things need to stop and we can't have anonymous accounts anymore. And all of this sort of, especially the racist hatred and the kind of like fat shaming and all of that would, would stop. But then there also came the flip side of the argument, which is, okay, if, we're, if we can't be anonymous, then I guess one of the factors about the internet is that we're able to comment on something or look at something and this isn't this isn't a race show or like a but I mean like a controversial political thing like maybe like Brexit or an immigration bill and you were able to sort of you know put your opinion out there or comment on something and you can be anonymous doing that because maybe being pro-Brexit might influence your work or something say and having that taken away is then stopping that free conversation that dialogue yeah and I agree with that But I do think that something needs to be done in order to stop the bad. And it sounds like the bad stuff is just getting louder and louder the more that we're on social media and the more unregulated it is. And so I do think I come down on that side of you do have to verify yourself online and actually stand by what you say, because most of the time you would never say something like that to someone's face. I totally agree. But what I also find so distressing about the racial abuse that we saw towards these footballers is that it wasn't only online. We also had the rallies and and the mural being defaced and all Mm. of these things that were actually in person, more physical and not just online abuse. So people Mm. were very much, they felt so strongly about this and they'd so caught up in this disgusting behaviour that Mm. it did spill out over on like it wasn't just online which was I think very very disturbing so and a real wake-up call to a lot of people who previously I mean especially last year people saying well Black Lives Matter is important but it's not as bad as America as it is in Britain and all of these things and making these comparisons which are just not very helpful and obviously they're different countries we have different laws especially around guns and arms and that changes the level of behavior in lots of ways but the underlying racism and the prejudice is very very much there I and mean, it really needs to be tackled very recently there have been 11 arrests made in connection with the racial abuse that Rashford, Saka and Sancho have experienced so I think that this is a, a step forward in the right direction that people are being held accountable and are being identified but if you think about 11 out of the number of people who posted things that is a tiny proportion it was it was such a shame as well because the euros really i think unified england in a, at a time where it was very and i think the olympics to some degree are doing, it's why sport is so powerful that way and it was amazing to have england do so well and actually as a wider point as well to team gb we are doing incredibly well at, at sport it's something that I think we should be so proud of. You know, the fact that our football team got to the final of the Euros 
is incredible. I mean, yeah, when I was a kid, I just got used to, I mean, this is the male team. The female team um, got to the final in 2009, but the male football team haven't in 55 years. And when I was a kid, I just resigned myself to the fact that we just get to semi-final, lose on penalty. And like, that was the best it was ever going to be. And Gareth Southgate has managed to take this team and completely transform it. And these young players are just so, oh, there's something so amazing about watching them. And and there was, again, there was this horrible, horrible tabloid thing where they compared, do you see this, where they compared the wags, as it were, to last World Cup in Germany in 2006, to the wags now and like how apparently all the wags now all have degrees or like university degrees and there was like hardly any degrees between the last so ridiculous um and kind of off that horrible like tabloid stuff and I can remember seeing an old photo of Cheryl Cole and thinking oh it was just an iconic outfit um, <laughs> um but yeah, they're such role models these but the young the young t- yeah the young players really are and knock wood knock wood a lot of, you know none of them have been in the headlines for being unfaithful for going out on crazy nights out and they've got young families and they've got you know wives who look like normal women they just they look obviously they're very beautiful but they look like you and I and they've got their young children that they're bringing to Wembley and it's like it's it was just really nice to see those kinds of role models and the thing with Rashford is no one can ever take away his heroism because he ensured the government pulled back their policy on taking away free school meals for the children who weren't in school last year because of lockdown. Like, I really, I'm so interested by that because it's so unfair because it so ruins it for everyone else. Mm. And that kind of mob mentality. mentality. Yeah. Of getting so taken by it. Just, it almost gets to the point where even if we had won, there would still be a mob that would cause horrible kind of violence and destruction. And so, What's that really achieving? Yeah, well, I mean, we covered this a very long time ago when we had Ade on the podcast on the correlation between domestic violence and football games and that the result of the football game doesn't even make that much difference in terms of how much it goes up Mm. when those nights are happening. But on the more kind of positive side, yeah, with Marcus Rashford, he's also recently been raising awareness for the number of um, food vouchers that people are entitled to, but not actually signing up for. And just he uses his huge fame and the audience that he has in such for such a good purpose and in such a genuine way that is so much about other people and not about him being this kind of saving. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Like he's just such a genuine, kind and heart in the right place kind of guy. And I just really love having those people as the people that we're looking up to and the people that we're talking about. And I just really hope that this online safety bill can be kind of amended, pushed through and finally put into practice so that we can crack down on on really disgusting, abusive behaviour online. I think as well, he needs to, it'll be such an iconic moment, him missing this penalty now as well. And same for Sancho and Saka, because to be resilient after that will take a lot. Um, And I think it will be, I really want him to go on how to fail and actually like talk about what that failure felt like. He said, he, he actually did have a really amazing Instagram post about it where he said, you know, I've done penalties a million times. I get them in. 
you know, he did it so well. The goalie went to the other side. He was literally just about to pop it in and it just hit the post. Yeah. I don't know why that happened um, this time. And I think that would be really good to, to yeah, talk about that more. That's, that's actually a very human thing. Um, and I think that Southgate will really be able to channel it into the, to the World Cup. Yeah, me too. But also just acknowledging that they got as far as the final and that they, for me, they were the best team in terms of the way that they played. They didn't pull everyone's shirts. They weren't getting yellow cards. And yellow cards and a pull, a shirt pull. Yeah. That was bad. It was really bad. Apparently that ref is known to have a lighter touch, but apparently if it had been another ref, that that would have been sanctioned far more. But I, because actually they did play very well in the second half. And that was the issue with being, having scored so early. I remember watching that goal go in at two minutes and just thought, oh, I don't know. Because as much as you can, I think as much as you can consciously say, no, we can't rest on our laurels, can't rest on our laurels. There is a slight relaxation or a, okay, at least we've got one goal. Whereas Italy were just going, 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 going. And you could see them come back in the second half and they just were relentless. And their goalie, to be fair. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I think he got man of the whole tournament. Mm. So just to finish, um, in case anybody is interested in kind of anti-racism resources, we've talked about this a lot on the Reflections podcast that we did last August. But three key ones to read if you're interested would be why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, me and white supremacy, and then Brit-ish. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Faker Podcast. Please continue to rate, review and subscribe. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.